broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the final episode of the Investor Exchange podcast for the year. Uh, I'm your host today, Louis Van Copenhagen, in the chair, and joining me as always is Joel Hewish and Brett Dickinson. Good morning, gents. Morning, Thanks. Louis. Merry Christmas. And Merry and, Christmas uh, to you as well. Good morning and a Merry Christmas to listeners as well. Yeah. Yep. I uh, don't know about you guys, but I am uh, quite happy to be drawing a line under 2020. Yeah, no, I'm happy, to, very, very much happy to see the back of this year. Uh, although I've got to say that out of every bad, there is also some good. And uh, so it, I would I would say that uh, 2020 has been one of those weird years where you'd prefer it didn't happen. But um, not everything that's come out of it has been uh, has been bad. In fact, there's been some really positive things that have certainly happened in our world uh, as a result of 2020. Mm. Yeah, yeah, fair to say, fair to say, absolutely. And uh, I guess from here we start to cast an eye on firstly our holiday plans and then the next year ahead. Uh, have you guys got any interesting holiday plans? I do. I'm getting the hell out of here. Um, I, I I love Melbourne. Uh, I love Melbourne as as much as anybody, but uh, I need I also need my space as well. <laughs> so I'm heading up north. I'm fleeing. I'm one of those Mexicans trying to cross the border. So Joel, is is this a break or a break up? It's just a break for now, yeah. Just a, just a break. Yeah, it's You're just not a break. breaking up with Melbourne. <laughs> uh, not breaking up with Melbourne, but uh, it's just a break. You'll be back. So, Brett, do you have any holiday plans? Uh, nothing dramatic, Louis. Tried to – well, how's the luck we've had? So we tried to book um, to get to Queensland um, sort of mid-year and then everything was put on hold and delayed. And then by the time we, we sort of had confidence that we could book in Queensland, we'd left our run too late. In the interim, uh, we'd booked a hotel in Victoria um, by about August uh, in anticipation of being able to get to regional Victoria – uh, but a couple of months ago, we received a notice that they went into administration, so our booking was cancelled. Oh, no. Oh, no. A bit of bad luck. So, yeah. I've a sister with a holiday house down the beach somewhere, so I'll, I'll sneak a few days in down there. I am having a Melbourne holiday. We are not going anywhere. Uh, we're sticking around town, and uh, and we're going to really enjoy just being around, uh, just having the downtime and uh, being, you know, with uh, with our local friends and neighbours, and we've got family in town as well. Uh, so it's just going to feel like uh, two weeks of relaxation with no work. So, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. So, um, you know, whatever people need to do to reset, I think um, I think they're going to do it, and they're going to find uh, a bit of self time to be pretty refreshing. Okay. Well, gents, uh, we might get into the podcast proper, uh, and I might kick it off myself. Um, I'm a few weeks behind the news uh, in getting to this topic, um, but a number of weeks ago, I'm not sure if you're aware that a pretty major report came out about the the country's retirement income system. Uh, It was a report that was done by some independent experts. Uh, It was a government-commissioned report. 
and it really reported on the three pillars of Australia's entire retirement system. Um, uh, have you guys seen it? Are you aware of it, or did it pass you by? I've got to be honest with you, Louis. Yeah, pass me by as well. <laughs> what are the three pillars? Fair enough. So the three pillars of the uh, retirement system are the combination of the age pension, the compulsory superannuation payment system, and thirdly, the voluntary savings that people make, which includes home ownership, so purchasing a home and saving towards a home and then paying off that mortgage. So those are really the three pillars that equal a successful retirement uh, or a successful retirement system as far as the government's concerned. The thing to keep in mind with any of these reviews is it's one of those top-down policy setting type of reviews. So they're not going to catch every person in every crack, but they're looking at the system overall. And generally speaking, are they designing a system which catches the widest net of people uh, possible? And uh, and the objective being uh, to uh, to reduce the level of poverty in Australia as compared with uh, with other countries. So the the big conclusions that came out of it, um, probably for a long period of time, people would be used to the idea around the age pension that the government thinks it costs too much money. Well, what this report has actually found is that compared to other OECD countries the age pension system is sustainable and relatively low cost. Right. So that's actually a, a bit of a tick for the age pension system. Another tick is that it works well when it is combined with one of the parts of the other pillars, which is home ownership. Right. So what yeah. they find is um, if people have two of those pillars, if people own a home uh, because of their lifetime of voluntary savings, yes. um, and they're entitled to the age pension, then it's pretty rare that you're going to have someone falling into poverty. Right. Uh, and as far as the system goes, that's pretty good. Mm. That makes sense, to be honest with you. I mean, we, yeah. when you step back and think about that logic, it, it, it does make sense. Yeah, yeah, it, it does make sense. And most people will have a bit of money uh, in addition to those things as well. So some kind of superannuation or some kind of other voluntary savings. Uh, but of course, not everyone does. Uh, and there's plenty of arguments about the age pension not being enough money and needing to be increased. Uh, but at its current level, it's uh, it's at least keeping people uh, out of a, a certain amount of poverty. Louis, can I ask when when did um, superannual uh, the superannuation scheme get introduced? What year was mandatory super started with the with the guarantee? Yeah, good question, Brett. Compulsory super started in the early nineties. Uh, it was it was Keating, and it was uh, I, I always forget the exact year, maybe ninety one or ninety two. Uh, but it's uh, it, it's around that time. So we are now approaching thirty years of compulsory super. Mm. Uh, Superannuation. It started off at a fairly low level, though. The contribution rate, I think, was uh, sub 3% initially. And, uh, yeah, correct. Over time, it's been increased to 9.5% to where it currently stands today. Mm. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, and one of the things about it is that it's uh, ever since it was uh, conceived, it was actually expected to increase to 12%. Uh, now, an increase from the current 9.5% uh, rate of super payments 
is legislated to increase to 12%, uh, but there is now some speculation that maybe it shouldn't be increased to 12%. Uh, some of the politicians' arguments are that now is not the time for it to happen. Um, well, I think that's been an argument for about a decade for it not to happen, so it seems like there's never a good time for it to happen. Uh, what this independent uh, review has found, though, is they reckon an increase in super contributions from 95 to 12% will come largely at the expense of people's voluntary savings. And yeah. they're, they're stringing a few things together here. So they're saying if the rate of super has to go up, that employers pay their uh, uh, staff in salaries, it's actually going to put an equivalent amount of breaks on the amount of pay rises that those staff get. And then it draws the bow from if people don't get a pay rise of a certain amount of money, then that amount of money is not going to, uh, would otherwise be going into that person's voluntary savings. Yeah, and I okay. I think that's a bit of a stretch because we all know that if someone gets a 1% pay rise or a 10% pay rise, um, most of the time no. that money gets absorbed into their living expenses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I will give a few credits, though, in that uh, if someone is earning a higher amount of income, then part of their expenses that they spend money on might be that home ownership uh, category, which is part of the voluntary savings category. So, oh, that's yeah okay yep i can i can see how uh how this independent committee is seeing the money flowing through yep. maybe there's also an economic impact that i'm not factoring in because if people are uh, spending most of their pay rise on uh, on discretionary spending or that consumer spending category rather than a savings category maybe there's an economic benefit which uh which gives a boost to everyone and therefore leads to everyone getting more pay rises or something like that although that might be a bit of a long bow. So I'm not sure uh, if they're right on the money by saying that um, the, uh, the proposed increase in compulsory super payments will result in an equivalent reduction in, uh, in people's salaries. I think there's too many other yeah. factors that are going to influence that. What, what it would probably uh, do, though, is it, is it may sort of slow down some form of aggregate demand um, in the economy and, and uh, you know, it may slow down the acceleration in, in GDP recovery. But, mm. um, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you, Louis. Uh, the evidence that I've seen in my career as a financial advisor is that People don't tend to save that on, on, on by and large, you know, mm. most people don't tend to save um that additional money uh, they tend to uh, be spending it yeah yeah I, I i i agree yeah but it does make sense that if you know employers that are having to find an extra two and a half percent you know to pay it, it is like a pay rise that they're having to find in their budgets so if it's got to go into super they might not have the ability to give it directly to them in their wages well brett i can tell you as an employer and you know i'm just being honest here um I look at all of my employees' wages uh, and their salary packages as a total cost to the business um, and how it's structured and the components and where it goes. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, just because the, the, the superannuation contribution rate goes from 9.5% to 12% doesn't mean that automatically 
my employees will get a two and a half percent pay rise. Um, I've I've got to take that into consideration with what the cost of running my business is, and so I'm looking at it from a total remuneration um, package perspective. Any time that I'm setting wages. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the only one. Those businesses. Yeah, all, yeah. all of those things are are important as as part of the overall system. Uh, so some some other things that this review goes into. Uh, I'll I'll come back to the age pension because I've uh, I've mentioned a couple of areas where it, where it gets a tick. Where it doesn't get so much of a tick is age pension for people that are not homeowners. Uh, the people who are not homeowners who are renters, the rent assistance amount uh, is a, an additional payment on top of the age pension, uh, but it's uh, seen as not sufficient to actually cover the amount of rent and the amount of housing. And that's where they do get the higher instances of rates of poverty uh, or um, even people uh, living a, an almost transient life, hopping from accommodation to accommodation because they can't find anything affordable. And even if they modelled an increase of 40% in the amount of age pension, uh, sorry, in the amount of rent assistance that people were paid, that was still going to be insufficient. So what it indicates is that it's more of a structural problem. And really the solution is not so much the age pension, but the solution is more to look at the other two pillars and what can they do to increase the rates of home ownership in that in that different category, the, the pillar of voluntary savings. And this is where you're starting to have that argument between um, some of the Liberal backbenchers and some of the uh, Labor politicians where some of the Liberal Party is suggesting that uh, access to superannuation at an earlier age is going to be more beneficial for longer term needs of what our society needs in order to, to be able to retire comfortably, whereas mm. Labor at this point in time are a little bit reluctant to to open up superannuation to home ownership they haven't quite got to that same point no they haven't they haven't and uh, and and in this report it doesn't this report uh, doesn't make any recommendations but it gives some pretty clear guidance for what could happen from here and there's certainly that implication that the superannuation system could do a better job of supporting home ownership and that's where these arguments come about, Joel, that you mentioned, where uh, maybe young people should be able to withdraw from their super in order to buy their first home. Or if it's not their first home, maybe someone who is um, 50 or 60 years old should have some support from their super fund in order to buy uh, a house to live in. And I don't know what that might look like because you, you're going to have all kinds of loopholes and unintended consequences. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the option's there, and that's that's for the policymakers to come up with the ideas. See, Louis, I would think that any such proposal that would include home ownership um, or, or supporting home ownership as a result of utilising some of your superannuation benefits should be quarantined, you know? So, like, if you've taken out, uh, let's say, $200,000 out of your superannuation to put down as a deposit on buying your own primary place of residence, that if you were to sell that property, that 200000 either had to be rolled into the next property that you purchased or it had to be put back inside your superannuation fund. Um, I think that there would need to be some sort of control around the use of that money um, outside of the superannuation system. Otherwise, you're going to have the situation where people are just going to spend it on cars and boats and holidays and those types of things. 
you know, they might they might initially intend to buy a house, but then if they sold that house, you know, and they end up with a big cash lump sum in their hands that they wouldn't have had otherwise, um, you know, that, that would be that would work against the system. I would have thought. Yeah, exactly. I'd agree with that. If the intention is to help the retirement system, well, then maybe you're only uh, wanting to support people buying houses up to a certain amount or of yeah. a certain dwelling type or at a certain age. And there's all kinds of, uh, of, of things to think about around that. Um, and really, they've, they've got an opportunity to design a, design a system here. Because really what we've got is we've got this system which is partly voluntary savings and partly forced savings. Yes. So if we are going to have this system of forced savings, uh, which is the compulsory superannuation system, then once people have those forced savings, then what are they going to allow people to do with those savings? And by looking at these three pillars, they're really identifying, well, home ownership is an important part of those. Um, so another thing which they're looking at is under the um, the voluntary savings pillar, they've identified a couple of things that are not working all that well. Um, firstly is, is the problem which, uh, you know, we've talked about lots of times on the podcast. A lot of people don't actually do any voluntary savings. However, when you in, again, when you include home ownership, as a method of voluntary savings, well then of course lots of people are doing it and lots of people are ending up with owning a home which is fully paid off in retirement. The real things that the report highlighted was that people don't want to draw down on their savings. If people have accumulated money in their super accounts, living off the income from those assets is okay, but people hate to draw down on those assets and yes. have a reducing balance over a 30-year period of time. Yes, indeed. And uh, I think most people would be familiar with the picture of what a drawdown over time looks like. And if you've got a certain amount of assets now, then in the early years of your retirement, you've still got the same or similar amount of assets, but as your uh, as inflation goes up and you need to draw a slightly higher amount of income each year then your your retirement graph it does actually start to trend downwards and then by the time a person is maybe 90 or 100 years old uh, then a lot of retirement planning will actually have a person running out of assets at that time mm. and when someone's retiring at 60 65 years old most people think, oh, well, you know, that's fine. By the time I'm 90, 95, I won't have um, the, the cost of living that I do today. I won't be traveling and doing holidays and uh, won't be having an active lifestyle. Uh, but I've got personal experience with dealing with a couple in their 70s and 80s. And, uh, and as their financial planner, they, um, they start having a go at me and they say, well, um, why, why don't we have enough money to live off? And I'm trying to tell them, well, you guys have got 700,000 bucks in your retirement savings. And P.S. I've only been your financial planner for two years. So your retirement predates me. So, you know, yeah. they put all the blame on me here. Uh, but anyway, um, when you retired 10 years ago, this was your retirement picture. And you're now at this stage here where yeah. you said 10 years ago, this is the retirement picture that I'm happy with. 
And you're now at that stage where you're supposed to be drawing down on your assets. Yeah. So no, you don't have enough uh, income from your investments to do that. You do need to start drawing down on your capital and we'll start slowly. And on these numbers, you've still got a good uh, 20, 25 years ahead of you. Yeah. But people don't naturally want to draw down on their savings. And another part of that is when home ownership is considered part of savings, then drawing it down on the equity of the home is included as part of that. Right. And there's a lot of people that don't want to draw down on the equity in their home. And there's also a challenge that good home equity access products don't really exist. There's there's some products that are there, but there's not a lot of competition uh, for those products. So that's the voluntary savings side of things. Um, one more thing, which has been flagged for a long time, and this is not quite part of the uh, of, of the system that's been reviewed, but it's a look at some of the numbers behind it. And that is uh, the cost of the age pension versus the cost of the superannuation system. Yeah, right. And again, I've said that for a long time, there's been uh, uh, lots of mentions about the age pension system being an expensive beast and a burden on, on, on society uh, because of how much that uh, uh, it costs the government to pay people in age pension benefits. Yes. Well, the tax concessions of the superannuation system are forecast to overtake the cost of the age pension. Really? Wow. Correct. Mm. So in future, uh, the superannuation system will become a more expensive pillar of the retirement system than the age pension itself. Right. The other thing about the tax concessions around the superannuation system is 80% of the tax concessions that cost the government go to the most wealthy and highest income earning 20% of the population. So expect to see changes in taxation with respect to your superannuation balance. Correct. So expect to see more uh, um, impositions on the superannuation system and how far they push it, I don't know. What time frame they choose to push it in, I don't know. Um, but if, uh, if, if, if either government is going to look for an opportunity to come out with a budget that reduces the amount of superannuation benefits, it would certainly be a time where there is uh, a good amount of uh, PR about the problems of the gov uh, of the budget. So it would be a time coming out of COVID when the government is saying we've got this massive deficit, we need to pay for it. By the way, we're going to fix this thing about the system, and that's going to lead to budget savings. Mm. Interesting, interesting indeed. I Very mean, interesting. Uh, that would be a. Uh, yeah, a, a very sensitive political topic, one would think. It would be very sensitive, correct. And it reminds me of what they did previously when they introduced the um, uh, the, the transitional benefit cap, the, the cap of $1.6 million per superannuation account uh, to, to have tax-free benefits in super. Yes. 
And now that they've introduced that system where people's superannuation accounts will have a maximum limit for which they qualify for the best tax concessions, what they can now do is they can play with that limit. That limit is uh, legislated to increase with inflation, uh, but of course that might be the thing that uh, that actually changes over time. Maybe in the future, instead of a $1.6 million cap, we'll see that cap actually reduced so that there's less tax concessions flowing to those people who do have uh, superannuation account balances of more than a million dollars. Yeah, it could, it could, uh... It could it could happen in one of two ways. Politically, the the probably the more acceptable version would be just to freeze the 1.6 million dollar limit, and over time, as inflation and uh, you know wages increase and inflation increases and and wealth increases, that that 1.6 million in real terms uh, actually declines. Or you could mm. have an actual you know um, nominal decrease in mm. that. One. $6 million cap, and it may come down to $1 million or something like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Another change might be around um, uh, voluntary contributions into super. Um, we know that in past years, those contributions have been uh, restricted down and, restrict and, and then moved up and then moved down again. Uh, so we might see some further tightening uh, over the amounts of money that can be contributed into super. Yes. I don't know, but I think it's uh, pretty well flagged uh, for, for two things to change. One is uh, this, which we're talking about right now, and the other flag is uh, that rise in compulsory super payments from 9.5% up to 12%. Uh, that might not go ahead. Or just be slowed down the timeline. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, could be, could be. And unfortunately, the thing which is out of the government's control, which is in more of the hands of the population, is the voluntary savings side of things uh, and people's uh, mentality around uh, being willing or unwilling to draw down on their savings um, in retirement. Uh, and on the flip side of that, um, people's unwillingness to actually do savings in the first place. Yeah. And that's my topic for the day. Yep. Louis, great one. Lots of food for thought there. And I think we're certainly going to see some more changes and more uh, tweaking to the superannuation system. Uh, certainly, it was when, when the system was envisaged, it was not intended for the superannuation system to cost more than what the age pension uh, system would be. So if that's the way that we're heading, almost certainly you can see changes uh, occurring there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the challenge in the past has been how do they make those changes? Uh, without uh, pissing off too many voters? Um, and how do they make those changes when people who have already retired will now uh, will have those changes imposed on them and when they plan their retirement on a certain amount of retirement income, they might now need to factor in some tax on that income? But what ended up happening was that uh, over the first sort of 20 years or 15 years of the, of the superannuation system, being compulsory, we had so many governments and different governments changing policy that there was so many grandfathered rules that it actually became very, very complex. Uh, so then in 2007, with the simple super reforms, we had uh, what was thought to be a more simplifi simplified superannuation system, um, getting rid of reasonable benefit limits and uh, age-based um, age-based contribution limits, and and then uh, swapping that for the current. Concessional contribution and non-concessional contribution caps, 
but um, uh, yes, but in the end, <laughs> it, it, you know, these these changes that are designed to try and make things more equitable can sometimes overcomplicate the system and have an inverse impact because you, you want to you want a simple enough system that the vast majority of people can understand without having to go and speak to a financial advisor or a lawyer to just get a basic understanding of the system. But what ends up happening is that uh, you know sometimes it can be the reverse. So much of this reform that might likely take place in the years to come uh, is going to have to be well thought out because uh, we, we tend to find that there's these uh, nuances and complexities that. Um, and, and unintended consequences, as you mentioned, Louis, that sometimes come back to, to haunt us. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, we might kick over to a quick break and we'll be back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. And welcome back. Uh, Joel, I'll throw over to you with uh, what's happening in the share markets around the world. Thanks, Louis. Uh, look, pretty pretty uh, benign sort of week this week where um, we've sort of got a little bit of a sideways action happening here uh, in, in the markets. Um, at this stage, the market, uh, we, st we are starting to see a few little uh, signs that uh, over the past two or three months, uh, breakouts were a little bit uh, patchy. We would see stocks break out of their basing patterns and then they would uh, start to pull back in shortly afterwards instead of uh, continuing and following on. Uh, in the last week or so, we have started to see a few more breakouts continue to hold and uh, and rather than pulling back in, you know, if, instead of uh, just continuing their move higher, they were making more constructive sideways uh, moves or sideways uh, consolidations after the breakout. So something to watch there uh, of note. But look, more so in the short term, I just uh, there was an interesting research report that came out from from Kelly Cox. Uh, now uh, Kelly Cox is a strategist, um, and, um, and and she's done some uh, research uh, that has taken a look at. How many losing streaks? Now, a losing streak is defined as uh, consecutive down days uh, for the broader indexes, and and how many losing streaks we've had in the S&P 500, the world's uh, you know the world's primary uh, stock market index. Really, it's the U.S. stock market index, but all all other stock markets tend to take its lead from the U.S. stock market. Um, and so, and what she's found is that despite the pandemic and the recession. And record unemployment. Um, the year 2020 has been the most consistently positive year in history. Wow! That's, wouldn't have picked that. Wow! Would not have picked that at all. No, that's right. So um, she's noted that this year has seen only 32 days that were mired in a losing streak. So um, a second day of a decline following a, the previous day having uh, been a decline. 
So defined as back-to-back -back losing sessions. On a rolling one-year basis, this is the lowest in history. Um, and what she shows is that uh, it's the lowest in history uh, dating back to 1928. So don't know if anyone remembers what happened in 1929, um, but uh, it yes. wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> so she did note that uh, there is a contrary bias to, to this data. So what that means is that uh, the, le the least or the lower uh, number of um, uh, you know, um, losing streaks often leads to lower returns in the following year and the higher number of losing streaks being that we've probably already gone through a bad period already, uh, the higher the returns over the preceding uh, 12 months, um, over the, sorry, the, the subsequent 12 months. So um, uh, interesting to note, though, that uh, across, in, in her study, so at this point in time in the year, we are 242 calendar days, or sorry, 242 trading days into 2020. And so what she's done is she's gone and had a look back at the uh, subsequent periods um, where we've had the previous lowest 20 uh, years or uh, previous 20 lowest years of uh, losing streaks. And she's had a look at what the returns look like. And, and what it tends to find is that over a one month, a two month and a three month basis, it tends to indicate that the momentum continues to be there so that stock market returns over the next uh, one to three months are generally still pretty positive. Uh, in three months time, uh, the average return is a 4.1% return um, with a, an 80% success rate. So meaning that uh, in 80% of instances we're in positive territory for an average gain across all of those instances being up 4.1% in three months time. But what it does show is that when we start to stretch that data going forward, uh, to six months, we still have a we have a positive outcome of 6.3% with 80% success rate. But then when we start to look out one year ahead, the returns actually come in and uh, are much more mixed. So the average return over a 12-month period um, is 2.6% uh, with a 55% success rate. So much more mixed over a 12-month horizon than what it is in a one to six-month horizon. So if we're taking that uh, evidence and we're sort of looking at where we might be uh, at the moment, it sort of suggests to us that um, uh, given that we are 242 days in and, uh, and if we're trying to predict, predict forward what might happen over the next uh, six months or so, it generally means that we stay the course for the next three to six months, continue to be invested, but be wary about what might happen uh, beyond six months' time because things start to get a lot more choppy and uh, we start to see a lot more um, – significantly uh, negative uh, outcomes on a 12-month basis. Um, when she did the study and had a look at the least number of losing streaks to 242 days in and had a look at the, the 20 years which had those uh, losing, the, the, le the least, sorry, the highest number of losing streaks, suggesting that we're in an already bad market, what she found was that uh, in the short to medium term, it, it was patchy often because the trend is still um, is still trying to find its its footing and we, we haven't perhaps seen the, the end of that trend uh, to the downside so far. But when we start to look out at, uh, so we started to see, so if we're looking at one month to, to six months, uh, sorry, one month to three months out, the success rate was only around the 60% range. So out of every 10 instances 
uh, out of every 10 observations, only uh, six out of of those observations would end in positive territory and four of them would end in negative territory. Uh, But when we start to look at 12 months ahead and six months ahead, uh, the numbers start to improve. Um, so we start to see that uh, if we've been in a bad period and we've we've had you know a high number of successive losing streaks, uh, the success rate in six months' time averages out at 11.3% for a 70% success rate and increases to 75% success rate for a 15.2% increase um, over the next 12 months. So um, I guess the message is that uh, by looking at it and splicing the data in in uh, in both uh, looking at the least number of, uh, of losing streaks versus the most number of losing streaks, um, we can we can probably infer that uh, things should be okay for at least the next three to six months, but we need to be uh, generally wary for where we are beyond that and uh, looking for signs of perhaps distribution, signs of weakness. Um, and I think one of the things that might start to be come on to, on, into focus next year is what happens as the economies around the world start to improve off the back of this vaccine, and we start to see stimulus measures being wound back. Previous instances over the past decade, uh, where central banks have started to wind back on programs such as quantitative easing or fiscal stimulus programs, have tended to coincide with uh, periods of uh, stock market volatility. Uh, we saw it in uh, 2015, where we had the temper tantrum, uh, sorry, the taper tantrum, uh, we saw it back in 2011 and 2012 when uh, central banks uh, tried to come off quantitative easing as a result of the recovery that was getting underway um, coming out of the global financial crisis. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so it, it, it stands to reason that uh, once this these stimulus programs have been introduced and the shots have been fired and that governments start to think about winding back these stimulus programs to preserve their fiscal positions and also uh, you know, not overheat the economy, uh, that we we may be in an, um, a period where there could be some volatility when those programs start to um, be dialed back. So just something to be cautious of and wary of leading into 2021, that uh, the momentum's with us at this point in time, but uh, let's just be uh, open-minded about what the possibilities could be uh, beyond that. Very interesting, very interesting. So good things to look out for for investors. Um, thanks, Joel, for the share market update and, and a view of the uh, the year ahead. Um, Brett, let's send over to you and see what you've got uh, with property markets. Well, I thought based on um, a few things and similar to what Joel was saying about uh, looking for the next six months, and I think Joel's got some information on on potential predictions we made this time last year on what 2020 <laughs> might look like. Uh, I just wanted to flag something that, uh, that we've been bullish about for a long time, which is um, the Southeast Queensland residential property market. Our, our advocacy division, um, whenever we've got uh, a client looking for investment purposes, has, has been strong in recommending properties around Brisbane in particular, uh, but also open to the, the greater Southeast Queensland region, which includes the Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast. Uh, and of course, we, we were that much of a believer in it. The very first development project we did was in Brisbane in the suburb of Murray. So we're definitely big believers. Uh, and some news I've seen today is that Brisbane's median house price has just has pushed past the $700,000 mark for the first time. Wow. Uh, yeah. So so a 4.4% annual house price growth 
with Brisbane uh, achieving a 4.4% annual house price growth, uh, it, it's been a, a stellar year for them. Uh, and there's still a lot of room to grow in our opinion too, given that their median house price is showing as 720,000 in this report. That's still uh, a fair way short of both Melbourne and, and Sydney with Melbourne up in the high 800s and Sydney breaching the million dollar mark. Uh, it's still a fair way behind. And with with what we've seen through COVID in particular, with, with a lot of people looking uh, to go to where the climate's a bit more uh, rewarding uh, and affordable housing, I think Brisbane is, is primed as well as ever for even more capital growth over the next few years. Mm. Regarding Brisbane and, and look, even southeast Queensland, uh, another area that uh, has seen significant growth, uh, Noosa, not surprisingly, uh, has actually got a median house price now getting close to 900,000 uh, and has seen uh, approximately 54% growth over the last five years. Uh, so anyone wow. that's been to Noosa and can understand the, the attractiveness of the lifestyle can see why you can see um, not just Noosa, but the whole of the Sunshine Coast has got quite a bit to offer. They've got nice beaches, of course, the climate, uh, and still relatively affordable housing if uh, if you believe you can uh, can live there and work at uh, work from home or, or find jobs in the area. Mm, yeah, yeah, very interesting. And that says something about the um, uh, the the markets outside of capital cities. That um, the those sort of tourist markets. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, very good, Brett. Thanks for thanks for that information uh, on, the, well, on the property side of things. No worries, Louis. But I'm I'm curious now um, to hear what uh, what Joel's going to tell us about our predictions from last year. <laughs> oh, I'm very sure. good. I'm looking forward to that too. Let's let's take a let's take a quick break before we get to that, and we'll be back after this message with our 2020 predictions. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on, or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03-8657-7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. And hello, we're back. Uh, Joel, take us through this. Well, um, as the famous saying goes, uh, I've got two balls and none of them are crystal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that, that applied that applied very much so to our predictions uh, last year and our efficacy in those predictions. Uh, Brett, you kicked off last year's final podcast by by quoting Johann Norberg from the Cato Institute, and I quote: "All is pretty good in the world, and is doing, and we're doing a lot right." <laughs> <laughs> well, we we were up until about February, sort of January, February. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. that was uh, that that was, a, that was a good thing to sort of kick it off with. But obviously, you what's you, that dickhead's name again? I'm not listening to him. <laughs> <laughs> Johan, Johan Norberg. Yeah. 
What so uh, we, we had a look back at the year that, that was in 2020 and uh, we, we analysed exactly, you know, what took place. And it was actually a pretty good year for the for the stock market as well, uh, coming out of what was a, a pretty horrid uh, finish to 2018. Um, this year, we, we look back at this year and obviously it started, everything started quite well, although we had this little, you know, epidemic that was, uh, that was you know, bubbling away in this small town of uh, Wuhan that not many Australians or even the world would have probably heard about. Uh, and then we look back at this year and before you know it, all hell breaks loose in, uh, in March and April of this year and the world has entered into one of its worst recessions um, on record. In fact, this is the first time, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this, but this is the first time that the global economy uh, has gone into a global recession uh, since the Great Depression era of 1929 uh, through to the 1930s. Um, we have not seen an all-out negative GDP print um, across the globe for GDP since uh, since the 1929 1930s um, uh, depression. So, the worst recession um, that we've seen in the globe uh, for the past 90 years, essentially. Uh, and so, uh, without knowing all of the full facts of how this year was going to pan out. Um, Brett, we, uh, we we took a look at the you, uh, at the Australian real estate market, and your prediction for the year was that 2020 would probably see about a 2.5% increase in real estate prices across Australia. Uh, not sure where that actually landed, Brett. Do you have the uh, Do you have where we're currently sitting right now? Well, currently, it's it's not going to be far off because it's um, I think we're slightly in positive territory across the nation for the whole year. So I don't have data, but yeah, I'd be comfortable. I'm within a I would say it's somewhere around one to one and a half percent. So I'll I'll credit that as a win. Yeah, you'll credit that as a win. Okay, and your and your best performing capital city. Do you recall which that one was going to be? I would assume I would have said Brisbane, given what I just referenced and and what we've been saying for a while. No, actually, you, you predicted Melbourne, and you expected Melbourne would do about four to seven percent. So, um, uh, little did you know, though, Brett, that uh, that our our state government here had uh, had a few problems to deal with, and uh, ended up having to shut down the state in order to get on top of this uh, coronavirus pandemic here. Um, and interest rates, you made a prediction that interest rates would drop from one point seven five percent down to one point five percent. Uh, you got the dropping right. Got, you got the drop right. Direction, just not the amount. Yep. So, so all in all, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. You've uh, uh, probably the Melbourne one was a little bit hard to predict. Uh, came yeah. out of the blue. But uh, but all, all in all, I think Melbourne Melbourne real estate prices have probably been around about flat anyway, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. All right, and Louis, you predicted that consumer confidence will grow. Oh, yeah, of course I did. <laughs> and wages would grow. Oh, well, my goodness. Well, <laughs> what was well, I thinking? Well, to be honest with you, Louis, the, the reality is that consumer confidence is growing after a huge dip. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I predicted the, the second part of the V. I just didn't predict the first part of the V. Yes, and uh, and wages would grow. Well, uh, I don't know if we've seen much wages growth so far this year. In fact, we've seen unemployment increase quite substantially from this time uh, last year. Uh, banks will go into acquisition mode. Uh, 
tough year for the banks as well. Yeah, uh, tough year. And uh, 47 podcasts is what you predicted as well. I, I'm not too sure in terms <laughs> of how many podcasts we actually had this year, but I reckon 47 would be about the mark. Yeah, sounds right. <laughs> Uh, and I uh, I made the prediction that the S&P 500 would be up by 20% after breaking out at the start of this year and starting a new uptrend. So far to date, the S&P 500 was, uh, is up 14.4%. Well, so, so that's not too bad, I think, uh, given that uh, we've had a pandemic in between and a very fast uh, market decline. Uh, the NASDAQ, however, um, which is the market that we tend to play around in a little bit, is up 31.6% this year. So a sub-segment of the uh, US stock market. So, you know, I think uh, I, I, got the, I got the direction right and I probably got the magnitude right, just not exactly um, the, the number, but certainly the, the magnitude of the improvement in the US stock market, I think, was, was fair to say that we're in the right direction. I did make the prediction, though, that ANZ would be the next bank to be fined a big sum of money, and I don't think that that did occur this year, from what I understand. Um, I'm seeing that. Because that was coming off the back of a huge fine uh, by NAB, a huge fine uh, against uh, Commonwealth Bank and Westpac, um, and uh, we, we I, I certainly expected that uh, ANZ would probably have some skeletons come out of the closet if those three uh, were caught. So. We'll see what happens. There's still a couple of weeks left to go before the end of the year. That's true. Uh, <laughs> I think ANZ have a uh, not a not a fine, but I think they're in a big class action issue, and uh, that's still being worked out. Okay. So I guess, guys, we should put our intellect together and uh, think about what our predictions might be for the year that comes, oh. 2021. We all hope it's going to be a <laughs> a different year to to, to 2020. Uh, Brett, maybe we start with you. What are your thoughts about uh, where the real estate markets are heading here in Australia and uh, what's some of the what, what's maybe one or two big predictions that you have for the real estate market for 2021? Gee, mate, I was, I was hoping you'd go a little bit softer on me and maybe ask for, a, you know, a, a Norm Smith, a Brownlow medalist and a premier. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't been any good on that either, mate. <laughs> Uh, well, obviously, with what I said before, I still think southeast Queensland's got room for growth. I think we'll see uh, a bit more of uh, interstate migration move into southeast Queensland. I think what we've learnt through COVID is that, um, you know, technology allows people to work more remotely and a few people will be looking for better lifestyle, which typically southeast Queensland affords with its climate. So that's one thing. Uh I think we're going to see uh, a little bit of a decline in values across these the high density areas. Um, so you know Sydney, Melbourne, CBDs, areas around Melbourne like Docklands uh, and South Bank. I just think the with the the borders being closed longer yeah. and get programming in. Brett, you've just gone up, a bit wobbly there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Just in the last 10 seconds. All right. Oh, I just think we're probably not going to see uh, enough demand for the, the apartments in the high density areas uh, in the capital cities over the next year. So I think we'll probably mm. see a little bit of a construction decline because obviously those big projects. Uh... And Brett, you've dropped out again. Yeah. You said those big projects are. Bro, and, we'll, and you're back now. Okay, so those so big those projects big are. projects 
those big projects are significant contributors to the construction industry. Uh, and I think there's probably not going to be an appetite from developers to uh, to do more of those uh, unless they're already underway. So I think we'll probably see a, a bit of a slowdown in construction next year. That's about as much as I think I could say from what I understand at the moment, mate. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, uh, Louis, what about your predictions for this year? You've got uh, consumer confidence will, will grow last year. Well, it's growing right now. Uh, I think... I think uh, consumer confidence will will grow really nicely next year, um, but I think we I think it's fairly easy to see what's going to happen. We'll have good results in Australia. Uh, a lot of money will stay on Australian shores, um, which means some businesses will suffer that usually retire uh, require international money, uh, particularly around the education sector where they rely on international students. That'll be heavy hit. And then uh, if we do see um, the majority of the population vaccinated in Australia and globally, well, then we'll see all those things start to open up probably in the back half of 2021, which means a bunch of money will be leaving Australia. And it'll be interesting to see the, um, the, the twist in the economy for places that will um, will maybe have a bit of a quieter half of the year and then, um, uh, and then other... Uh, other businesses and sectors uh, come back in full force with international tourists and international trade and and things like that coming back on the agenda. Uh, consumer confidence overall, I think, will be high. Uh, wages growth, I don't expect to be there because uh, there's a lot of uh, unused um, uh, people uh, as far as um, employment goes. Uh, so not a lot of pressure on on wages in general so we'll continue to have a pretty stagnant wages growth um, some of these political issues around um, uh, how much the rate of job seekers should be um, the superannuation changes um, also don't forget the year started with bushfires uh, and there's still a, a desire from a lot of people to take uh, some kind of uh, uh, additional climate change action um, the cynic in me right now says that politicians will actually do jack shit and make as few decisions as possible. Fair enough. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to throw in there? No, what else do I feel like saying? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you really think. No, no, that's it. I think that's my, uh, that's my best crack at 2021. Okay, let me, uh, let, me take, let me put a number on it. I reckon politicians will make uh, three big decisions and that's it. Right, okay. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, look, from my perspective, uh, 2020 has, uh, as I mentioned, hasn't all been bad um, for our Platinum Alpha portfolio. Uh, now I've got our 12 months returns to the end of November. So our Platinum Alpha portfolio uh, over the past 12 months is up 30.4% net of all fees. Um, so it's been a, a very good year for us. Mind you, it has certainly had its challenges for us, uh, the, the UGC securities team. Certainly remember doing the hard yards in uh, mid-March through to uh, mid to late April where the team had to come in and work uh, about five or six weeks in a row of night shift. That was certainly uh, trying and testing it sometimes. Um, but overall, we were able to navigate the market relatively well. Our hedges uh, came into, into play and, and protected us against the worst of the worst when the decline occurred. And it put us in a strong position to actually take advantage of this sell-off when it, when, it, um, uh, when it started to recover. 
Having said that, though, um, you know, whenever you have a, a fairly strong year, uh, and we've had two strong years now in the S&P 500, uh, the year prior was was up somewhere around about 30 to 35 percent. Um, and when it comes to the uh, S&P 500 this year being up 14.4 percent so far to date, I suspect that we're going to have a bit more of a mixed year in the stock market moving forward. Ten- we tend to find that uh, two years is about as good as it tends to get before we start to see some more moderate returns. Uh, We've had two double-digit years in a row um, and some substantial gains. So I suspect that we're probably going to have more moderate returns, and I suspect that, albeit that the momentum could carry us forward in a fairly strong way for the next three to six months, I do expect that at uh, some point in time in our winter or the Northern Hemisphere summer, next year we'll probably uh, have some form of uh, a wobble um, and I suspect it'll probably be around uh, news and announcements that relate to um, perhaps an easing of stimulus or the conclusion of uh, the the levels of monetary support that is is taking place at the moment. So we, we tend to know that November through to the end of April are the strongest months of the year in the stock market and we're right in that sweet spot right now where we should continue to see strong stock market performance based on seasonal factors. However, um, you know, sometime between May and October, I suspect that there'll probably be some sort of a correction of sorts and uh, um, and that uh, we might need to take more of a defensive posture. So all up, I'm predicting that uh, the S&P 500 next year will grow by less than 10% across the course of the year. Uh, so it'll be a single mm. digit but positive return for the S&P 500. Mm, interesting, interesting. Good prediction, Joel. Um, there is one of your uh, previous podcast updates I want to give you a bit of a bit of a gentle ribbing about, if I may. <laughs> uh, and it goes back to January, and it goes back to when the World Health Organization uh, declared. Uh, the coronavirus a, a something like a it, it was declared a pandemic or it, it reached some kind of status at the time and I remember that financial markets uh, uh, reacted negatively and what you said at the time was based on what has happened previously with uh, with SARS uh, with Ebola with MERS and the the five or six other um, Uh, nasty viruses that had been around in the last couple of decades. Um, Once the World Health Organization declares that status, the financial markets will have a dip and then they won't care. And financial markets will just keep on going up just like they were before. (laughs) Like I said, like I said, Louis, (laughs) two balls. (laughs) 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 Oh, very good. Good. All right. Yeah. Well, this one was uh, this one was quite uh, quite different, wasn't it? Uh, we haven't seen anything like this uh, for for quite some time. So, uh, yep, got that one wrong. Uh, what do you think? What do you think? Well, look, let's close out the year like we always do with a "You Can't Be Serious." And Brett, do you want to kick us off? And Brett's gone dark again. <laughs> Brett's gone dark. Uh, Brett, I'm sure you're going to come back shortly. So um, uh, 
So I'll kick off the You Can't Be Serious today. And yep. my You Can't Be Serious is about a Japanese business that started right in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, this Japanese business is in Kyoto uh, and, uh, and they sell rice flour cakes to the pilgrims who come to the shrines uh, that are in the, the old part of Kyoto. Um, and they, um, uh, they started this business in the middle of the pandemic 1,000 years ago. Wow, really? And they oh, are cool. still going and uh, still the same uh, same recipe of rice flour cakes, and they've got a particular name, which I don't know, but, um, but Japan has the biggest proportion of the world's oldest businesses. Wow. Uh, there are more than 33,000 companies in Japan that are more than 100 years old. Yes. There are more than 3,100 that are more than 200 years old. Uh, there are about 140 businesses that claim to have existed for more than 500 years and, uh, and 19 companies that claim to have been continuously operating since the first 1,000 years uh, um, AD, so more than 1,000 years. Incredible. That's, that is incredible. So yeah. there you go. You can't be serious. I'm, I'm guessing, uh, Louis, that uh, if you're a fan of uh, Kill Bill and Quentin Tarantino, that some of those businesses might be sword businesses. <laughs> quite possibly, quite possibly. And in fact, there's a special mention in this article, which I got it from, of the uh, the company Nintendo, uh, which is actually a, a hundred, I think, what was the number? 134 years old, I think, is Nintendo. Uh, and they actually started making playing cards. Is that right? Incredible. Yep, yep. Now all they can sell is uh, is an Italian plumber. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And his brother. And his brother. That's right. And the dinosaur that they ride. Anyway, over to you, Brett. Okay. I, I was going to give you uh, a Christmas. You can't be serious. Uh, of a particular lady that uh, decided to do the display at the front of her house. So she started uh, with a, a stone statue of a gargoyle that she draped in uh, in the Santa beard and Santa hat with an elf on top. Yeah. Uh, but the local community didn't take too well, saying, "Well, it's." not really the type of Christmas character we're looking for. It's a little bit scary for the kids. Uh, so she just decided to up the ante and started dressing up skeletons and gremlins <laughs> and all sorts of other things uh, and went the whole hog. Nice oh, one. Wow. Well, good well, my, my uh, You Can't Be Serious, I think, fittingly, to close out the year is 2020. <laughs> <laughs> 2020, you cannot be serious. <laughs> oh, I'm on board with that sentiment. Well done, everyone. Uh, we've made it to the end of the year. Uh, give everyone a pat on the back around you for all uh, doing it together. And uh, we look forward to joining you, joining you again with a fresh start in 2021. Bring it on and uh, all celebrate together and have safe holidays. And we'll see you next year. Sounds good. All the best, Thanks, guys. guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, listeners. Bye. Bye-bye.